listening to Hey, Kyle, how's it going? Good. How are you? Yeah, doing well. Excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your career in tech. Sure. Um, so I started writing JavaScript when I was, I think, 12 years old. Um, growing up, I was always really into computers, which I'm sure is pretty standard for most people in this space. Um, but I really enjoyed kind of being able to like get under the hood um, and see the internals of how they worked. Uh, so I was I self-taught myself through high school. Um, I went to a really, really small Catholic school. And so we didn't have any computer classes or, um, you know, like AP computer science or anything. So I self-taught through that. Um, while I was in high school, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of contract work, uh, which led to doing an internship or two. And then I got to college. I studied computer science and cybersecurity um, and did a multitude of internships and some freelancing while I was in college. And uh, yeah, here I am. Great. And what is it that you do now? What's kind of the space that your current work is focused on? Yeah. So I wear a lot of hats, um, but my primary role is I'm the product lead for Zealous Wallet. So we are a multi-chain cryptocurrency wallet. Um, we also have a couple of different SaaS products that help brands and agencies activate in the Web3 space. Um, so I lead the product team for the Zealous Wallet and for those products. I also do a lot of the security work for Zealous. For example, I manage our bug bounty program. I oversaw our security audits. Um, and we actually don't have a full-time infrastructure guy. Um, we build everything on AWS and I pick AWS up very quickly. So I also do a lot of our infrastructure and DevOps type stuff. So a lot of hats. <laughs> nice. Uh, what sparked your interest in cybersecurity? Yeah. Um, so I knew from pretty early on um, when I started coding that I didn't want to just sit at a desk and write code all day. I just knew that that really didn't appeal to me. And when I got to college, I saw a poster for SMU's Cybersecurity Club. And I went to a meeting and I watched a guy named David Brockler, who I'm now very good friends with, uh, break into a Windows server. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, I want to do that. That's really cool. I actually remember like all the specifics of it. It's an exploit called Eternal Blue that um, was used in the WannaCry ransomware attack, which... Um, lots of people have heard of, um, but I just remember being like wowed by that. Like I didn't even know that that was like a career field or that something you can do. Um, and so that interested me a lot. So I decided to specialize in cybersecurity for my comp sci degree. Um, I did a lot of cybersecurity competitions, um, both offensive and defensive, um, either on kind of the red team side, breaking into simulated environments or on the blue team side, defending them. Um, and I just, I really enjoyed that. I also did a little bit of R&D. Um, I did a little bit of uh, malware development for a uh, red team for a local consulting company. And um, I just, I, I really enjoyed all of that. I found it really challenging and thought provoking. Um, and I really enjoyed the technical communication aspect of it too. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, that sounds super, super interesting. I mean, like watching any of those, like where people get up on stage and, and, you know, do an exploit and break into stuff. It's like, it's magic. Honestly, it's, uh, it's really, really fun to watch. Uh, how did you kind of get then from the cybersecurity world into the web three space? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I know that's not necessarily a natural, uh, natural transition. So, uh, by the time I was finishing up in college, um, I had a, a couple different job offers from various cybersecurity firms, and I had I had actually accepted one. Um, but my friend, who was working for a uh, for Zealous, <laughs> where I am now, um, asked me if I would do some development work for him. And actually, originally, he told me what he was doing and that he was going to be in the crypto space. And I kind of told him, "That's dumb. You shouldn't do that. Um, crypto is dumb." <laughs> and so long story short, he he eventually asked me to do some development work for them while I was still in school. And I told him yes. And I think that's kind of where I had my aha moment. I really fell in love with the product that we were building. I really love our team. Um, and I just kind of became fascinated by the problems in the space. I think where there is some overlap between uh, kind of blockchain and Web3 and cybersecurity is encryption. Um, Obviously, blockchains are um, cryptographic primitives. Um, and so they, yeah, I, I was really interested by that and how this was a really interesting use case of um, asymmetric key cryptography and all of the different possibilities that it enabled. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess when you kind of like look at it from that angle, there is like more of a natural overlap there than someone might think of uh, sort of on on face value. So tell me a little bit more about the problems that you've run into. You know, you mentioned like there were some really interesting problems and I'd love to hear more about what some of those are, if you can talk about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so one of them that I can talk about um, I guess what most people know about a blockchain who are in the tech space but aren't maybe super familiar with it is that it's a distributed public ledger. And so from this, it might be easy to get the idea that it's like an Excel spreadsheet that all of your assets are on. And this is not even remotely close to being the case. <laughs> it would be a lot easier if it were. Um, but the, the blockchain that we work with the most, which is Ethereum and various EVM networks, um, they use an account model. So for Ethereum balances, like, oh, I have five Ethereum, you kind of mm. have like that two column Excel spreadsheet situation. Um, but for everything else, it's much more difficult because Ethereum is programmable. And so all of the assets and coins that are on Ethereum aren't actually part of the blockchain itself. They're part of smart contracts, which are like these they're not contracts, they're like applications or pieces of code um, that live on the blockchain. And so Ethereum is kind of like a, a ledger or database of these different applications, which once they're on the blockchain are more or less immutable. Um, and the assets are defined by these. And so actually, if you want to find out all of the assets, i.e. the Ethereum, the coins, the NFTs that are in someone's Ethereum wallet, you have to go index every single one of those smart contracts of which there are thousands and thousands and thousands and go ask each of them and interrogate them for what uh, what assets they define and what a user's balance of those assets is. 
And so it's a much more complicated problem when you're building a wallet to show someone what's in their mm. wallet than you right. would maybe get the idea of from just, oh, it's a public ledger. You know, we can't mm -hmm. just go look and see, you know, here's the line item for this person. It's it's a lot more complicated. So how did you, I guess, like, how do you figure out the security risks in this space? Because it is so new. And um, I mean, to my knowledge, it's still pretty new, right? Like it hasn't been around that long. How do you determine what to look for and what like sort of threat vectors there are in a space like this? Yeah. So a lot of traditional security concerns still apply, um, but a lot of them are the, the, the cases that it's more of a different emphasis. So for example, um, people talk about these things called decentralized applications which are usually their React apps or single page applications that don't have a backend. Um, they use the blockchain as their backend because the blockchain enables storage and it enables execution and so forth. Um, and the front end lives on something like IPFS, Interplanetary File System, or Arweave, which are distributed um, storage networks. And so the, the application is basically just a React app that lives on a distributed file system and then the blockchain's backend. And so instead of usually having to think about, um, you know, your, your backend application security and um, some of your more traditional infrastructure concerns, you have to think a lot more about things like cross-site scripting when people are connecting their wallets to this application. And if you mess that up, it can potentially ask them to sign transactions that they don't want to sign and steal their money which would be much harder to do in the traditional finance space. Smart contract security has been a very big uh, field and is very much uh, still very new. And we're still learning a lot about it. Um, it turns out securing um, applications that once deployed are immutable is a lot harder <laughs> than uh, you know securing a, like a Node.js app that you can just patch when someone discovers a flaw in it. Um, so, those are kind of different emphases. And then obviously on the wallet side, um, keeping users' keys secure is really important. Um, and this is actually something we're you know, um, using Evervault for, um, is how do you store users' private keys and their cryptocurrency wallets in ways that are secure? Um, and so our, our core wallet just keeps it on the user's device. And so it never leaves their device um, because if it did, you know, if it ever touched our servers, then we would have access to the assets in that wallet because your your private key functions as access to your funds. Um, and so we, we don't ever want to touch users' private keys unencrypted. And so for our non-custodial wallet, we don't ever like upload that. And we've seen in the space what happens when, you know, for example, a wallet company misconfigures like their Sentry configuration or something. And there's a trace that suddenly has a user's private key in it. And all the user's funds get stolen because it had you know, $10 million in Ethereum. And one of the devs at that company decided that was, uh, you know, <laughs> that they couldn't miss miss out on that. So um, like as a wallet, you know, we have to be really careful to kind of isolate how we store and manage users' keys. Um, but we're also building a, a product that's more like an embeddable wallet um, that is easier for companies that are not in the Web3 space to integrate and to use. Um, to allow them to give things to their users that are like NFTs, digital collectibles, and so forth without the user having to generate a private key on their device and then share the public address and so forth. And that that's really what we're um, 
kind of using Evervault for is the ability to generate and store those keys using secure mm. enclaves and um, encrypted storage so that we can't ever touch those wallets and we can prove that cryptographically using, you know, um, attestations from secure enclaves. Um, but Evervault can't, you know, touch it either because you guys don't have the data, you only have the keys. And so it's, um, it's a really interesting use case that's like helping us solve this problem of like, how do we make wallets more usable in the web free space? Yeah, I didn't really know until I started getting into this work just how many places data can leak out um, and how catastrophic that can be. Like the story that you shared of someone's, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands uh, of coins getting stolen. It's... Um, I, I've heard I've heard like so many stories like that recently too of just like keys getting leaked places and somebody's like open AI bill getting like totally <laughs> ramped up. So yeah. it's um it's a real problem. I guess do you have any advice for people that are struggling with key management or figuring out a good key management practice? Yeah, I think my advice for that is kind of what they drill through your head in college security classes about implementing your own encryption in general, which is don't let let someone who's better than you or who's better at it than you do it. Um, you know, let let experts do it because if you do it yourself, you're going to have a bad time and it's not going to be, um, it's just not going to be as secure because it takes a special type of domain expertise to do it. So we, you know, the, the only time that we ever want to hold users' keys or that like we let our code hold users' keys as if that's only sitting on their device and you know we've prevented anything from touching that. Um, anytime you're storing, like you don't ever want to try and roll your own solution to store keys in a database or um, anything like that. We, <laughs> we, we designed our system from the very beginning so that we did not want to touch any of that information. Um, but for most people, that's not a realistic possibility. And so if you do have to store that type of information, you don't want to be designing your own solution to that. Yeah, that is not a weekend project that anyone <laughs> should uh, pick up and try yeah, to run with. Don't do the, uh, the FTX style store users, uh, private keys in your Mongo database on encrypted. You're going to have a bad time. <laughs> oh, yikes. You know, it's you, you mentioned that you do a lot on AWS and uh, I have recently been building more stuff on AWS and I can really empathize with people. I think I mentioned this maybe in another show recently. Like, I feel like when you're just trying to get something to work, you kind of set everything up and you're just like, oh, I'll go back and like fix this later. Like I'll change this permission later. And then like sometimes later just never comes. And mm -hmm. then, you know, if you're building like a demo, like what I'm building, it's probably not that big of a deal. But yeah, if you're building something that's like managing people's like money or private data or whatever, yeah. then uh, that's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, AWS does a pretty good job making things relatively secure by design, certainly with their default firewall configurations um, and, and access controls and those type of things. But it's also really easy to do something that has serious security implications without realizing what you're doing. Um, if you've never written IAM policies before, they're not the most obvious thing in the world. And so it's really tempting to use the wild card sometimes, <laughs> which is a really bad idea. But, you know, if, if you're just using AWS for the first time or, you know, if you don't have someone that knows what they're doing and you just need it to work, that's what you're going to do. And um, it's really easy to do that and then to forget you did that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I I love asking this question uh, from developers, but I feel like every developer has that one problem that's really annoying to solve. Like I feel like time zones is one that comes up a lot, but I'm wondering if you have anything like that where like every time you know you're going to have to work on it, you kind of dread it. Yeah. Time zone normalization is definitely one. Um, the friend that I mentioned earlier, Will and I, we met in college and we um, worked on building a really small startup while we were in college. And part of it was had to do with notifications and scheduling. Um, and we wanted the scheduling to be native to the user's time zone. And so we tried to like do time zone normalization and get what time zone the user was in and schedule things based on that. And it caused us some problems and we ended up losing a customer because they were in a funny time zone that <laughs> just made something break because you have, you know, it's not like you just have your latitude and longitude. It's jagged lines everywhere. And then does this country do daylight savings time? Does it not do daylight savings time? And um, that's a pain. We also have, I, I haven't run into issues with that in a long time. I do run into arcane AWS issues sometimes. Um, we recently had several of our fortunately non-critical microservices just stop streaming logs for some reason. And we started playing with the IAM policies a bunch and couldn't figure it out. And we rebooted the service and it worked fine. It was Plastic, like the, turn it off again, turn it back on. <laughs> yeah, it was like the execution role had like lost. I, I don't know, something to do with cache credentials. But yeah, we run into arcane AWS policy and permissions issues from time to time. Um, we have a particular developer on our team that um, does a lot of the infrastructure for for that team. Um, so that I, I do a lot of it for a wallet team, and he does it for his SaaS team and. Uh, sometimes I wake up in the morning because he's in Eastern Europe and I'll see a like a, a Discord notification badge on his profile that says like I have six messages waiting for it from him and I just know it's going to be a long day because I'm like, <laughs> oh, not again, because it's always like some arcane AWS issue that <laughs> just takes all day to, to resolve. <laughs> so, um but it's still easier than running your own stuff on-prem and hiring a full infrastructure team. So, Yeah. I guess what's your experience been like kind of working at a startup? Um, like, it sounds like you kind of came on pretty early on. And uh, yeah, I guess from like a, a technical side, what's, what's the experience been like for you? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, honestly, I think everyone should work at a startup because... It lets you learn, or not lets you, it forces you to learn so many things so much faster than if you were working a more traditional role at a larger company. You know, if, you're, if your job is to be a React developer or a backend developer, there's nothing wrong with that and that's great, but that's pretty much all you're gonna be doing most of the time. And working at, at a startup, there's fewer silos and we have our teams are much more cross-functional. And so the front end guys are working with the design team to iterate on the designs and find something that both looks really good and also isn't going to take six months to implement. You know, our backend guys are working with me and one of the other developers that works on the AWS infrastructure so we can coordinate, you know, here's what the infrastructure is going to look like and how do we design the application so that it works well, you know, based on the like distributed configurations for it. Um, it also just lets you get a lot closer to the business side of things because you're, you know, sitting in the same room with all the guys that are doing the marketing. And, you know, while we're on calls with 
you know, other fintech companies for like banking rails. And it just exposes you to so many more things um, that I, it's like, I learned more in a, my first year at Zealous probably than I did in four years of college from, from mm-hmm. the standpoint of practical hands-on knowledge. Um, it, it's just been, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Um, and <laughs> so sometimes it can be overwhelming um, but it, it's just, it's so, so much information because, you know, you, you sometimes you can't punt a problem to your senior dev because he's busy or because there's no one more senior than the person that's working on it already. And so you as a team have to sit down and work out the solution. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, it's, I think everyone should do it. Yeah, I agree with you. I worked at a startup, um, probably like eight years ago. And then I went to a big enterprise company right after. And, and then now I, and then I went to kind of like a mid-sized company and then now I'm at Evervault, which is, you know, still in, in like sort of startup scale up mode. And, um, it is so nice to be able to just say like, I think we should do this. And then you just do it. (laughs) And it's like amazing. There's no like nine levels of approvals that it has to go through. And, uh, and you're right. I think you do learn so much, especially just because, there are a lot of different types of problems that you have to solve. I actually saw something recently. Um, uh, I think it was like on Twitter where people were talking about how a lot of folks that were at um, bigger tech companies that, you know, for whatever reason now uh, are no longer there. Um, a lot of them were reflecting that like, I learned so many skills of how to grok this particular organization, but now I'm realizing that like that might not apply to another place that I go. Um, mm-hmm. And I just thought that was kind of interesting because it is sometimes the larger a company gets, the more it can become just about like how to, figuring out how to navigate it versus like doing whatever, you know, role it is that you sort of do as your main priority. Yeah. Yeah. There's can definitely be so much more red tape. When I was in college, I interned for a company where you had to go fill out a form and submit it and wait two days to get approval to run as local administrator on your computer. If you couldn't install something to your local user, you had to install it as an administrator. You had to fill out a form and email it to someone and keep bugging them. And it was, it was awful. Um, so yeah, definitely so much less red tape. And I think also especially with Fang and some of the other like really big tech companies, they very much have their own, like not just idioms in terms of like their processes or organization, but like their own technological idioms that you get like really used to doing and nobody else does things that way because the company has pretty much their own internal stack. You know, I know Google especially is really notorious for this. Like all their services use gRPC and protobufs and, um, just they use a lot of other technological things that everyone there's really used to working with that just nobody else uses because you can't it's like it works really well when you're at google scale but if you're not google you can't scale it you can't build it in the first place because the team that's required to do that is bigger than your entire company and so yeah it it just kind of you don't have those weird idioms at you know startups and smaller companies Yeah, definitely. I'm very curious to see too, just now that they're kind of, things are kind of changing in tech, all of the, between like AI and, um, you know, just like the change in the market, I think it'll be interesting to see the things that come out of this period of time. And I'm wondering, is there anything in particular that you feel excited about within tech, like a new technology or something in the Web3 space? 
Yeah, I think um, I, I know at this point, this sounds like a boring answer, but I think AI, obviously, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say there's a there's a search engine called you.com that I use. It's kind of like chat GPT with internet access and it'll cite its sources and everything when you search for things. I haven't used Google in probably six months um, because I, I use this AI search engine and it's so much better. It can also be like fine-tuned for when you're looking for code versus when you're looking for, you know, like research papers. And so mm. it's it's so much better. Mm-hmm. And they're, I think they're really just collectively, we're just really scratching the surface of what AI can do. You know, it seems like every week, you know, someone's figured out how to do something new, whether that's creating deep fakes of Drake songs or, you know, writing these little autonomous GPT agents. Um, it's, I, it, I think it's like kind of like an event horizon. Like it's hard to see past because I don't know where we're going to be uh, with it in five years. I think someone compared like ChatGPT to being AI's um, iPhone moment. I think it's more accurate to say it's like the invention of fire. It's like we have no idea what comes next. Yeah, that is true because there's just so many applications and there, yeah, there's there's like endless ways that it's going to be integrated into like not only sort of our careers and our work uh, in tech, but just in like every facet of life. Yeah, yeah, it because it opens up like a new dimension for applications. I think you can think about it as the way that applications used to be written. You pretty much just had like syntactic data, like users could give you information and you could transform it like mathematically or, you know, using other APIs and indexers and so forth. And, And you could use that, but you couldn't code semantics, right? You couldn't like say, I want you to do this. Um, and so applications were kind of limited in that way. And now like AI and GPT in particular allows you to build applications that like have semantic content, like a user can express that they want to do something or like they can upload a photo. And now you can, instead of just saying, oh, here's a photo, apply a filter to it, right? You can say, what is in this photo? You know, and you can get the semantic meaning of that, or you can just do so many things that used to be so much harder just by making an a- API call to open AI, right? Um, and so I think it's, it's really exciting. Are you building anything uh, with AI yourself at the moment? Um, you know, I've played around with it a little bit, um, just really small uh, side project type situations, but um, I'm pretty heads down focused on the Web3 space for work at yeah. least. So, Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, what is something that you've learned uh, that you'll never forget? Like something that just really like made a huge impact um, in, in your life as like sort of a, a technologist and a programmer? Yeah. Um, I don't know that this is necessarily came from a single person. I think it's a lesson I learned over time, but it's that instead of focusing on tools to learn or frameworks or languages, you should understand the underlying concepts and primitives and understand those things really well. And then from there, you can go much broader or deeper where you need to without being limited to your framework. So for example, when I was um, doing a lot of the ethical hacking um, type things in the cybersecurity space, there's a million tools out there, but 
you know, you can memorize how to run a million tools or you can memorize, like you can understand how the application that each of them is like checking or scanning or whatever. You can understand how that application works and how it can be misconfigured. And then based on that understanding, you can then go poke and prod at it where you need to instead of having to run six tools. And I think the same thing applies for software engineering. Um, you know, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to learn Node.js or React or Next.js, it's like understand how applications work, understand like client server separation and networking protocols, and you'll be much better at building systems. And if you understand programming languages really well, you can go learn a new programming language really like really quickly. Obviously, some of them have their own idioms, some more than others. Um, but learn, like don't learn skills, learn skill acquisition, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, that is something that a lot of people told me. I did a uh, software engineering bootcamp. And um, yeah, the number one piece of advice from like every mentor that I had was like, now you kind of have the basics, like go learn where those come from, you know, because like Python was like the first language that I learned. Mm -hmm. And then I needed to learn Java, like pretty quickly. And so yeah, they were like, data structures, algorithms, like, just get all of these basics, and like, you'll be fine. And I remember at the time, it just did not make any sense to me. I was like, how can this be true? Because I don't, I don't think there's like an analogous, um, at least not one that comes to mind for me. There's like something uh, else that's like that to like learn that way where you can just kind of like trust that if you get those basics then it will translate into like any stack that you might want to use, mm -hmm. uh, you know, within reason. But yeah, I think that's definitely very good advice. Yeah. And it's, I think it can be counterintuitive sometimes too, because, you know, I remember learning all these things in college, like operating systems or data structures. And you're like, why do I need to know how to reverse a linked list? Like I'm never going to write this from scratch. Why do I need to know how, or why do I need to learn how least recently used page replacement works and like the Linux kernel? Like I'm never going to use that, but then you're writing an application and you're like, oh, okay. Like this needs to be a really small service that can be horizontally scaled. And so it needs to be really memory efficient. And so like, how do I design the application and pick data structures and primitives that like will allow me to write something that's really memory efficient um, that you would, and you would just have a much harder time doing that if you didn't understand what was going on underneath the hood. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. This has been great, Kyle. Thanks so much for, you know, telling us a little bit about the work that you do and uh, the Web3 space in general. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Uh, no, I just thank you so much for, for having me. It's been really fun and I really appreciate it. Be great.